If you have a Bible, if you could turn in it to Genesis chapter 18, um, and if you're using one of the, the black Bibles, either in the pew rack or in the chair underneath you, you can just turn to page 13 and you'll be in the right spot this morning. Now, as we've been working through this series on the story of Abraham and Sarah and talking about really restoration, we're really talking about something that, that's, that's positive. I mean, if you talk about restoration in any sort of just a general sense of restoration, it's, it's, it's a positive thing. You're, you're making something right if you're restoring something or you're refurbishing something. But even though that's true, even though restoration is a positive thing, You're also saying some other things when you say that. There's another message. Whenever you talk about restoration, there's another message that you're communicating either implicitly or maybe explicitly, and that message is this. You have to deal with bad stuff, okay? If you're going to restore something, that means in some sense there's some bad stuff you're dealing with, okay? If you're restoring a car, that probably means undoubtedly you're going to have to deal with the rust. Okay, that's not an easy thing, but you've got to deal with the bad stuff. You've got to get rid of the rust. If you're talking about restoring a relationship, restoring a friendship, it probably means you're going to have to deal with some conflict. You're going to have to deal with some sin. You're going to have to deal with some things that have taken place that kind of made the relationship fall apart. You're going to have to deal with that. From the, from the biblical standpoint of the restoration of all things, that means at some level, in some significant way, evil has to be dealt with. There's no way restoration can happen without dealing with bad stuff, which raises some questions. How do you deal with bad stuff? And since we're in church and so we're sort of talking about God and we've been thinking about God, how is it that God deals with bad stuff? I mean, if it's a part of life and He's going to restore things, how does He deal with that? How does He operate in those ways? Now, I'll be honest, I don't think dealing with bad stuff is necessarily an easy assignment. It's not necessarily the thing where like, oh yeah, let's do it right now. I'm excited about it. In one sense, to be very precise this morning, the next section of the story that we are going to look at, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, is all about judgment. I'm actually surprised any of you showed up this morning. I mean, judgment is not exactly something that's fun to talk about. It's not easy to think about. And the truth is, judgment can seem harsh or, or unloving. I mean, there's a part of, why don't you just skip that chapter? You know, let's, let's not talk about that stuff. Why, why do we skip? Why not skip it? Why are we going to take some time and talk about something that may not be the most comfortable? Well, in the unfolding story of Abraham and Sarah, it seems like if you're going to talk about restoration, you have to talk about judgment. We have a son, our, well, we have a son, we have three sons. Uh, our second son is about to graduate with a degree in electrical engineering, and I'll be honest, I understand very little about electricity other than you can zap yourself if you're not careful. But one thing I know in electricity is, you know, there needs to be a negative and a positive terminal on batteries. If you want the positive of restoration, 
you're going to have to have the negative of judgment. So we're not talking about this because I just want to talk about judgment. It's because if we're going to really talk about restoration, we've got to deal with the judgment piece. We've got to talk about that. And I'll be honest, this morning I am not hoping that we laugh a lot. This is a sober subject, and I pray it's sober not because I'm afraid of talking about judgment, but because in the mind of God, this is a very sober thing. In fact, we're kind of moving into, again, we're kind of picking up the story where we left off last week. And last week, it was talking about Abraham and Sarah having a baby. Sarah being told as a 90-year-old woman, she was going to have her first child, and she laughs. There was a lot of laughter, in a sense, last week. There's really not much laughter because the subject is going to go from talking about having a baby to talking about judgment. But even how God does that says this is serious. And He does it in a way, I think, God really is orchestrating this. I think God does this in a way that says there's some things that we need to keep in the background of our minds or maybe even more so in the foregrounds of our minds, some truths about judgment and about God that we need to understand that they will kind of shape how we look at judgment. Yes, it's a negative, but there's some things about God and how God operates that makes this a huge thing we've got to grasp. So we're going to quickly to kind of, before we get to the nuts and bolts in that sense of judgment, of literally fire coming down from heaven, before we get to that, there's some background things I think we need to know that need to shape how we think and how we view judgment. Okay, so truth number one, what's in the background? What do we need to make sure? We need to understand that judgment is a part of God's plan. Okay, this whole judgment thing is a part of God's plan. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, kind of in one sense picking at the middle of a story, the scene is set. It says, then the men, these were the three guys that had been with Abraham, then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Okay, the meal they had had was done, which meant purpose number one of their visit, purpose number one of their visit was to tell Sarah, Sarah, you're going to have Isaac. But purpose number one is done. They kind of checked that box. Now it's time to get to purpose number two of their visit. And purpose number two of their visit is all about Sodom and dealing with the issue of Sodom. Now, Sodom came up a number of weeks ago in our series when we looked in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13. Okay? Very much at the end, it's sort of the second message, it said these words about Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. Okay, for a long time there had been this issue of Sodom pre-Genesis 13. Now we're 20, probably 24-ish years or 23-ish years after that, and the issue of Sodom is still there, and the issue of Sodom needs to be dealt with. They were great and wicked sinners. That was their reputation. That's how they were known. Basically, everybody knew that, and it's got to be dealt with. But even in trying to deal with the issue, there's some tension. Okay, this isn't an easy subject. Verse 17 of chapter 18, God begins, and most likely he's talking to the other two angels, the two angels with him when he says these words. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Okay, there, there's a sense of soberness. There's a sense of gravity about what's coming for Sodom. 
that God in one sense kind of says, should I tell Abraham? This is a pretty big thing. Now, it's a big thing, and Abraham's obviously going to know, but should I tell him or should we just kind of try to avoid it? I'm a great avoider. I've taken enough personality tests and different things, and I've been told, you know, you just avoided a lot of things. So part of me is like, yeah, let's avoid talking about it. But even in how the question is asked in verse 17, says God's going to tell him. Say, but why would God tell him? Why does God tell Abraham this judgment's coming? Well, verses 18 and 19 really are going to give us two reasons that are interconnected. Okay, and they really are about the plan of God. So look first with me at verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I mean, should I hide it from him? If we're going to do restoration, Abraham has got this huge role in restoration. He's got this huge part of it. And how can I do judgment, which is connected to restoration, if I don't tell the person who knows, who's so critical to restoration about it? God's saying, I think Abraham needs to know this. He needs to know judgment is a part of my plan that it has to be dealt with. That's part of the reason, but he kind of adds to it in verse 19. It kind of broadens it. Verse 19 says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, the, the point of verse 19 is, if Abraham and those that follow him, his family that come after him, if they're going to have a personal sort of experience of restoration, they're going to kind of see it in their life, they need to walk in the way of the Lord. They need to be connected to me. Now, to go back two weeks, just kind of remind you, when we talk about walking in the way of the Lord or following the way of the Lord, that starts when a person turns and trusts God Almighty. Okay, we saw that a couple weeks ago. In our terms, we know that God Almighty isn't just God Almighty, the title, but it's the person of the Lord Jesus. That we are to trust the Lord Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. We're to trust Him, and that means we've started a relationship with God. It sets us up to go in God's way. And God is telling Abraham, in essence, in this conversation with the question, I want you now to walk with me, and you walk in righteousness and justice so that you'll experience the restoration God has. Now, here becomes part of the question. How do you live in a way that's righteous and just when there's all kinds of bad stuff around you? How do you do that? Well, you do that if the God who's overseeing all of this says, I need you to understand, here's how judgment works, here's how restoration works, and I'm going to ask you to live in a way in the midst of the bad stuff that's righteous and just. But the only way you're going to do that is if I tell you this is how it works. See, the background truth of judgment is judgment's a part of God's plan, and He wants His people to understand it so they know how to live in the midst of it. That's a background truth we need to know. God wants us to live for Him even when there's stuff around us that isn't good. Truth number two that's in the background. God is not reactionary. When we talk about the subject of judgment, God's not reactionary. Okay, let me share with you a bit of, a bit of an overstatement. 
parenting induces guilt. Maybe this is not true in your life. Maybe as a parent, or maybe you're not a parent, maybe you've had kids, you, you know, you, you, you've been babysitting or whatever, and things don't exactly go the way you want them to. You're, the kids act out in some way, and you react. Not that my kids have ever pushed my buttons. Not that my wife has ever said, you know what you just did was really stupid. You should really not do that ever again. You know, maybe, maybe kids, your kids or kids you're looking after, they yell or scream at the wrong time and it makes you look bad. You know, your child screams in the checkout counter at the grocery store. You know, and it, it irritates you. Or you've asked them, just be quiet for five minutes. Five minutes, that's all I'm asking and they get to four minutes and 58 seconds, and they scream, and you lose it, and you get angry, and you snap at them, and you go to bed that night, and you go, I overreacted. <clears throat> but they pushed my buttons. Yeah, they did. Question, do you think God reacts to us? Do you think we push God's buttons? Is it possible that you and I, our sins kind of grate on God, just like our kids whining grates on us, and their bad attitudes get under our skin? They should love doing yard work. Does God do that? Only well, verses. 20 and 21, when God stops talking to the man, and he's going to talk to Abraham now. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that they have come to me. If not, I will know. Okay, God's kind of painting a picture for us of this is how I do judgment. I deal with bad stuff, God says. But God doesn't react to the noise of Sodom. It's not like Sodom was so noisy and God got woken up from his nap. So he snaps at them. No. We need to understand if God's doing judgment, he's not reacting. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows it in clarity and precision. Carrie and I know of a family where if one of their kids acted up, they'd spank that child. And then they'd spank the other two too, just in case. <laughs> God doesn't do that. That's a truth we need to keep in the forefront. Truth number three, God's justice has mercy. God's justice has mercy. The story continues, verses 22 and 23. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed swipe away the righteous with the wicked? 
Abraham knew Sodom was wicked. Abraham, kind of in his own mind, probably understood they should be zapped. So he's asking, God, are you just going to lower the boom and blow everybody away? And and to be more precise, to kind of press the point a little bit, Abraham gets a little more specific, verses 24 and 25. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then swipe away the place and not spare the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, the the question there that ends verse 25 is pretty significant. And in some ways, in, in the background of that is Abraham's come to a point in his life where he's, I think, begun to realize his only hope is in God. That God is the only one that can do anything for him. But now judgment's showing up and he's trying to figure out how does God and my hope and all of that fit in this place? God, are you going to be just when you do this? I mean, I hope my sister doesn't listen to this message, but she always used to say, I'm younger than her and I'd do something to her and she would always look at me and say, Lloyd, I don't get even. I get ahead. That was a great way to get manipulate my behavior. But it does kind of leave us with would God act in revenge? Would God retaliate? I mean, does God get so ticked off at the wicked people that he's just gonna get everybody? You know, maybe we do deserve to be spanked too, so he's just going to throw us all in. I mean, is that how God's going to operate? Because Abraham's going, you're my only hope. Are you going to be just here? Notice what God says in verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God wants Abraham to know in the midst of judgment, Abraham, there's still mercy. It's not like those are totally separate. Whenever I express judgment, when I come to bring judgment, there's mercy there. Now, I want you to think ahead in time from the time of Abraham all the way to the cross sort of 2,100-ish years probably forward in time. The cross is a symbol and an act of judgment. At the cross, God was putting out and pouring forth His righteous wrath on sin and on evil. Really, literally, the sin that should have been on us, He put on Jesus. Judgment happened at the cross. But what else happened at the cross? God put all of our stuff on Jesus. Why? So that you and I could receive mercy. When God does judgment, there is mercy. We need to understand that. Now, to go back to the story of Abraham, Abraham's going to keep going with God, and he's going to drop the number from five, or 50 
down to 10. And each time, in essence, God is underlying, yes, judgment needs to happen, but there's still mercy. There's still mercy. Now, this is where the story gets a little tougher. See, restoration and judgment aren't theories. They're realities. And because they're realities, that means they can hit close to home. And for Abraham, this is about to hit pretty close to home. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, we need to remember, and this is going back quite a few weeks in this series, but Lot is Abraham's nephew, their blood. In fact, early in the story, it's Abraham probably thought Lot was going to be his heir. He had no kids, and it was going to be Lot. Lot would be the one. He was that special. Lot, in a lot of ways, was raised by Abraham. But the way verse 1 reads, you kind of get the sense, uh, this judgment thing, it's at Sodom, and Lot's there. This is going to touch Lot's life. So very quickly, let me just point out a couple of things about Lot that we need to, I think, understand. Okay, first thing I want you to understand is verse 1 says Lot was in sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, back in chapter 13 of Genesis, when Abraham and Lot split, Lot went toward Sodom, but he didn't live in Sodom. He lived outside of Sodom. But now, 20-plus years later, he's sitting at the gate. Now, to us, that might not seem like much, but in that culture, in that setting, to sit in the gate meant he had integrated his life fairly significantly into the life of Sodom. Okay, to sit at the city gate, to have a place at the city gate meant Lot had at least, at least, a position of influence. He was a person of influence within Sodom, if not having a position of power. Some of the commentators on this passage will tell you that Lot's place there meant Lot was like a city councilman or even the mayor of Sodom, okay? Now, that maybe to us is like, how did you get all that from verse 1? Because there's a lot of cultural background there, but he had a significant position. That we need to understand about Lot. Second thing I want you to understand about Lot, and this is going to take a chunk, there's kind of a few elements here, is Lot knew that Sodom was a wicked place. Okay, in chapter, or in verse 3 of chapter 19, basically a rough paraphrase of that verse would be to say that Lot knew it was so wicked, he strong-armed, he forced the angels to come stay at his house and not just be in the city. Because Lot knew it was bad. You say, how did Lot know it was so bad? Why was Lot the one who seen at this position? How was he so aware his community was so bad? This is another thing I need you to understand. Now, we're going to ask you to turn way far in the, almost the virtual other end of the Bible. So you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 just for a second. God had Peter tell us some things about Lot that are important for us to understand. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, it tells us this. 
and if he, so if, and if God rescued righteous, notice that righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Okay, verse 7 says Lot was righteous. Verse 8 refers to him as a righteous man. What does that mean? Well, in the context of the story of Abraham, we know from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abram, Abram trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You're a righteous person when you trust God to be your Savior. So there seems to be an element here that the Bible is telling us that Lot trusted God. But if you read verse 8 really carefully, Lot is tormenting his own soul. It's not something happening to him, it's something he's doing himself. He's creating this. And what seems to be happening is though Lot had trusted God, he's not following God. Most likely what Lot is doing, instead of aligning his life with God and God's values, is Lot's aligned his life with Sodom and Sodom's values. It's eating him up inside. It's doing damage to his soul, but that's where he's living. That's how he's living. That's how he's operating and functioning. Now, I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable, but I pray it makes us uncomfortable. Because you and I can be playing the game of Sodom. And I don't even know if Lot knew that this was happening to his own soul, that in essence he was doing this to his soul. But judgment's about to come, and Lot's going to know judgment. Folks, if, you're a, if you've trusted Christ, that's an invitation for you and I to follow Him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, verse, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, it says we're to be salt and light. I don't, think, I don't think Lot was being salt and light. He was being pure Sodom. That's unsettling about Lot. Now, let's talk a little bit more directly just about judgment. And since I didn't think anyone wanted a six-hour message, we're going to be really brief and just handle two questions. One is, maybe very obvious, why? Why does judgment happen? Why does God bring judgment? Why did He do that in this case? Why is God judging Sodom? I'm going to ask you to read me a bit of a longer chunk than we often do at one time, but verses 4 to 9, four to nine of, verse nine, of chapter 19. So before they lay down, they'd gone into, Abra, into Lot's house. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. 
Behold, I have two daughters that have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing for these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with, th- than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Okay, in quick terms, why does God judge? Because there is rampant rejection of His ways. There's utter treason. We're saying, God, we're not going to do it your way. Be gone with you. To be a little more precise, what we just read, even though the language is a little bit veiled, and Moses veiled some of the language in a sense, what's being described in these verses is sexual sin. A huge way that people have rejected God's ways throughout history and still today is in sexual sin. We just say, forget you, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, there is a great danger here, folks, that we just think, oh, it's just about a certain kind of sexual sin. There's a whole lot more going on at Sodom than that. If you were to look at Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, you would see Ezekiel inspired by God kind of adds, this sexual sin's happening, but there's other things. There's pride happening there. It talks about this incredible excess of food in Sodom as if there's very sort of self-indulgent, okay, personal pleasure. That's what they're about. It'll say that they they lived in that verse with prosperous ease. Again, indulgence. They had it all. They wanted it but they didn't care for anybody else. Okay, they didn't care for the needs of others. There's a whole lot of things going on in the city of Sodom that are so contrary to what God has told people they need to do. See, judgment doesn't happen because God woke up on the wrong side of bed. It doesn't. But before we say, oh, it's just about those people, I want you to just pay attention again. Just look down in your Bible and look at verse 8 of chapter 19. It's not just the people, the evil people. It's Lot too, offering his daughters. He's wanting to protect his guests, which was a, a great value. That's a good thing to do. But he does it by offering his daughters to be sexually used and abused. If that is not a distortion of how life should be, I'm not sure what else is. You see, judgment doesn't happen because God's feelings got hurt. Judgment happens because there is a rejection of God and God's ways in a measure that is disastrous to people's bodies and souls. God isn't flippant about judgment. You and I are to live for God's glory, knowing that His glory is for our good. God judges because everything in Sodom was the exact opposite of both of those. Now comes the harder question. Should I be concerned about how I live? Should you and I be concerned about how we live? It's another question we need to ask. Question two. I mean, should I be concerned about how I'm living? See, it's really easy, I think, for us to think the judgment's out there. You know, it's for the evil people out there, whoever they are. 
But this is what bothers me about chapter 19. God inspires Moses to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that stuff, but the whole chapter wraps around and keeps putting the spotlight on Lot, who the Bible calls what? A righteous man. I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uncomfortable. Maybe that's why my shoes don't feel quite right today. It's not, I don't like being in my shoes today. It's like, it's uncomfortable. And I'm literally saying my shoes are uncomfortable. I'm not being metaphorical at this point. <clears throat> so here's the question. Do I need to be concerned about how I live? If, if this is focused on lot, do I need to think about my life? Well, to answer that question, I want to share with you some observations from this passage. Okay? One, I want to be very, very clear. Lot was rescued. Okay, Lot was rescued. Okay, read with me verses 10, 11, and then 15 and 16. Okay, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping from the door. So the immediate situation he got removed from, he was good. Verses 15 and 16, as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up. You know, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. What notice this, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him up out and set him outside the city. Okay, God, again, mercy in judgment. There it is, right there. God being that. Okay, again, to go to the cross, the Lord Jesus dying on the cross declares God is merciful in judgment. We need to have that in our minds. Now, here's the thing, though. Given that Lot got out, everything's good for Lot. He got out, yeah. So really, all I need to be concerned about is, if I'm good, it's good. Does that sound selfish? Does that sound self-indulgent? Does that sound kind of jerky? And you think about Jesus in Matthew 22 said, what really matters in life is that I, we love God and we love people. He doesn't say, hey, as long as you're happy and everything's the way you want it, it's good, don't give a rip about anything else. It doesn't say that. We often try to live that way, but God doesn't say that. Second observation, I don't think Lot really cared about his daughters. Verse 8 again, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. As a dad with one daughter and two daughters-in-law, this to me is like, this is sick off the charts. But it gets worse. You continue reading in chapter 19 and you get to verses 30 to 38 and you will read the story of Lot's two daughters getting him drunk so that they can have sex with him, so that they can have children. Historically, that's where we get the Moabites and the Ammonites from. And you have to ask the question, where did his daughters get the idea to get dad drunk and have sex with him? 
I kind of have a feeling that Lot's leadership or maybe Lot's lack of leadership impacted a whole lot of things. Should you and I be concerned about how we live? That's a question. Third observation from this story. Lot's son-in-laws, the guys that were, to, were engaged to marry his daughters, they thought judgment was a joke. Okay, verses 12 to 14. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? You know, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy the place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Last week when Sarah and Abraham laughed about them having a baby, this is the exact same word, the same reaction. <laughs> Lot's lifestyle and conversations doesn't seem like they much pointed anyone in any direction towards God. Third observation, fourth observation, final one. Lot's wife looked back. If you read verse 17, verse 17, the angels will say to them, you're out of the city, don't look back. Now, the reason for that not looking back, I think, is a very symbolic thing of get away from Sodom. Not a geographic place as much as get away from the values, from the lifestyle. Don't let your imagination and desires be focused on Sodom. Get away from that. And here's the thing. All of those things are communicated in the context of judgment's coming. Lot's family knows judgment's coming. And then you read verse 26. But Lot's wife looked behind him. Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It seems like Lot didn't live in a way that really drew his wife to be oriented towards God. Even when she knew judgment was happening. Ask the question, does it matter how you and I live. I don't know that I've ever done this before, but I actually prayed this week that all of us would be incredibly uncomfortable. So I hope we've answered that. This isn't meant to be pleasant. I don't think this story's in the Bible to make us feel good. It's meant to be a sober thing. But in the midst of that, let me underline three things and then offer what I hope is a sober question we wrestle with. Okay, one thing I hope you and I get out of this story is that it shows that God does judge, which means all the evil and all the sin, all of those things, some of which some of you are wrestling and struggling with because you've been bombarded by it. Please know this, God will deal with it. Justice will be done. Second thing, from the context of the story, the context this story is told, I think it really does remind us that God wants to restore. See, God doesn't just judge. 
God brings us His mercy and His grace. And the amazing thing to me is even though we sin against God, even though we commit treason, we do those things, the Lord Jesus came and died on the cross to join, to invite us into a relationship with God. See, in one sense, God gives us an option, judgment or mercy, which do you want? He's invited, both are true. Third thing, I think God wants His family, and when we say God's family, what we mean is people who have turned from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus. God wants His family to experience restoration in their lives, and God wants His family to be agents, in essence, encouraging others to know restoration is possible, encourage others to follow Jesus. There's a lot of verses in this story that maybe you could focus on, but I'd encourage you to focus on chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God doesn't want your life to be marked ultimately by judgment. He wants it to be marked by mercy and restoration. And He's inviting all of us to that. Which is why now the sober challenge I want us to wrestle deeply with. Not just in this moment, but literally as this week unfolds, as this month unfolds, as this year unfolds, to ask us repeatedly to ask yourself the question, Am I walking with God? Am I living like Lot? Or am I a citizen of Sodom? Folks, we're one of those three. Judgment impacts all three in different ways. Which are you? This isn't a game. This is way huge. The message just kind of ended in one sense, but we need to do some important things.